Hello, my name is Ray, and I'm one of the pastors at Willingdon. Today I have my mug from India with me because I love India, its people, its food. And a little later on in this talk, I'll mention someone from India that I seek to imitate. So what do you long for? Perhaps you long for an end to racism and social injustice. Recently, I heard a pastor from New York say this, some just want to hang out with people who believe the same thing. It's comfortable. I want to be with people who are hungry for something. End of quotation. As I said in the weekly update, all forms of racism must be condemned, all forms of injustice eradicated, but it is a long journey. I remember witnessing racism and social injustice while working in the housing projects and in juvenile corrections when I was a university student in the American South. Racism and social injustice, very sadly, have been with us for a long time. You might ask, do we just become apathetic then? No. But to get beyond a fleeting emotional explosion, we need to recognize that the problem is human. It is historic, cultural, systemic. We are sinners. To battle racism and social injustice, we need to have our eyes fixed on the finish line. The finish line focuses our attention and enables us to persevere. For example, if a person is diagnosed with a terminal illness and they know their time is drawing to a close, it changes how they live. If they're a follower of Jesus, they become focused on their relationship with Jesus, their relationships with the people they love, and those around them who don't know Jesus. Everything they might have considered to be of value, their constructed identity, their achievements and their possessions they have worked so hard to acquire are no longer of great value. Those things fade into the background and they focus on what is of eternal value. So, I would submit that to engage meaningfully in the fight against racism and social injustice, we need to have our eyes fixed on the finish line. If we don't have our eyes on the finish line, we run this race for a day or a week or a month and then ride the next wave. What does it mean to have our eyes on the finish line? As we saw last week, Paul desperately pursues his relationship with Jesus. He has been justified through faith in Jesus, forgiven, no longer guilty. He's being transformed into the likeness of Jesus as he experiences the power of his resurrection and shares in his sufferings. He wants nothing more than to be like Jesus. And then in verse 11, he writes this that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Is that the finish line for him? Does verse 11 communicate that Paul is actually working for his salvation? The tentativeness of his language prepares us for the following verses. Look at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Paul is correcting the possibility of any false notion that may have arisen from his preceding words. He has not been resurrected. He does not know Jesus fully. And complete transformation into the likeness of Jesus, it still awaits him. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In chapter 3, verse 12 of Philippians, the phrase, not that I am already perfect, it carries the idea of having reached the goal. Paul is fully aware of the fact that he still sins, as do you and I. He has not arrived at the finish line, but here is a key reason for him to press forward in his walk with Jesus. Jesus has made Paul his. Jesus has taken ownership of him. Jesus made him spiritually alive. He was forgiven and adopted into the family of God the Father. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to live in him, and the transformation process has begun. Jesus had revealed to Paul what he wrote to the Philippians, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Typically, good renters care for a property as if it were their own. But if you are a landlord, you know that not all renters are good renters. Usually, if you own something, you look at your property with different eyes. You're willing to invest in renovation. You consider the future value of the property. Jesus, he's the best owner. He bought us with his own shed blood. He is transforming us by the work of his spirit. And the day is coming when he will, will present us to the Father as perfect. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, no matter what, press on. Press on because Jesus has made you his own. And then Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word goal that Paul uses can refer to the finish line in a race. Paul's picture is of a runner who has just turned the curve and is now running down the home stretch where he can see the finish line, the goal. He's running hard, focused on the prize. He writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 26. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly. End of quotation. Let's talk about running for a moment. If you want to run well, you need discipline. At my age, you stretch really well before you run. You alter your diet. You build your strength. Sometimes at the end of my run in New Westminster, for the last kilometer or so, I run up a hill, a long incline from the Fraser River to our building on 6th Street. 
It's a hard final push for me. I'm not running that fast. But if you speed up the film, you'll notice that I actually am moving. What really provides focus and motivation is to see our building at the top of the hill. I'm going home. I can see it. Paul has his sights fixed on the upward call of God. He's running toward home. That's his prize. What is included in that heavenward call? Well, his bodily resurrection, being in the presence of Jesus, complete transformation into his likeness, and being with God's family composed of people from all ethnicities and social backgrounds who have become followers of Jesus. In high school, our youngest daughter was a a long-distance runner. Her coach strongly encouraged her to race walk as well. Now, race walking is a tough modality that requires focus and discipline. You must maintain one foot on the ground at all times and one knee locked at all times. Race walking puts stress on your joints, your knees, your hips, your ankles. It's painful. It's very easy to shift from walking to jogging. So as you race, Officials are closely monitoring your walk. Three errors, and you're disqualified. Our daughter was competing in a 1,500-meter race. Nearing the end of the race, she was firmly in first place. The problem was that the finish line was not clearly marked. When she arrived at what appeared to be the finish line, she stopped, only to be passed by a few other walkers. She had stopped five meters short of the actual finish line. Obviously, my heart sank for her. The point is this. Paul is encouraging us to keep our eyes fixed on the finish line. It will determine how we run. Having his eyes fixed on the finish line, Paul is straining forward to what lies ahead. He's running bent forward, his hand outstretched toward the finish line. Paul leaves behind the things that he counted as gain, things that entangled him, uh, things that distracted him in order to win the prize of all the rewards of being one with Jesus. He's not just trying to be a better person. By the power of the Spirit within him, he's living for a future reality. So no matter what, press on. Press on for the prize of transformation into Jesus' likeness. The civil rights leader, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., really inspired me when I was in university. He was best known for advancing civil rights through nonviolence and civil disobedience, inspired in large part by his Christian beliefs. Here's an excerpt from his famous speech, I Have a Dream, delivered at the March on Washington in 1963. The first part is taken directly from Isaiah 40 beginning of his message. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made right, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. 
With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountains of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. I continue. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when All of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, we are free at last. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. had a clear vision of the finish line. He gave his life for the cause. Paul writes in verse 15, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The word mature there is the same word translated as perfect back in verse 12. Paul is saying, if you are spiritually mature, you will realize that you are actually not spiritually mature and you need to press on. You need to keep your eyes set on the prize. And if you think otherwise, he writes, God will reveal that also to you. In other words, Jesus has made you his own. The spirit of truth abides in you. He will teach you. John writes something similar in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Paul concludes this section of Philippians 3 with these words, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. That is, the revelation God has given us and the level of maturity we have reached. And then he begins the next section. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and, their glory is, and, their glo- and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Whom do we imitate? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul presents the example of Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he emptied himself and humbled himself, and then was exalted by the Father. We are to follow Jesus' example of humble, radical obedience. He is our role model for life. In chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, Paul also presents Timothy and Epaphroditus as examples of disciples who risk their lives for the sake of the kingdom. They witness to Jesus, and they love and serve the church family. And now Paul presents himself as an example to follow. He's running the race that they are. 
He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The Philippians are to imitate Paul insofar as he follows the example of Christ. A few weeks ago, I had some days off, so I watched some episodes of the Netflix series The Last Dance, a series narrating the story of the Chicago Bulls of the 1990s. Amazing basketball. Although they were focused on winning, I found their values, relationships, and language disturbing. They not only competed with their opponents, they hated them, sought to destroy them. Their competitive edge was driven by offended egos, by anger. Winning was the highest value. While watching, it was really easy to be drawn into the story and be influenced by it. But then I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are the values of the way of Jesus. Paul grieves deeply. He weeps as he writes about the enemies of the way of the cross. These enemies will have as their finish line the final judgment and eternal destruction. Because they worship themselves and their visceral impulses, serve their own interests, take pride in what will bring them disgrace, their end will be destruction. They have their minds set on earthly things. Earthly things here does not refer to the practical matters of everyday life, but refers to a way of thinking set in opposition to God. Their minds are molded by cultural values, feelings of superiority, their reputation, a constructed identity based on pedigree and achievements. Paul says, look out for them. We are to fix our attention on the pattern that we have in Jesus, in Paul, in Paul's fellow workers. We have much to learn. Much growth in Jesus comes through the imitation of other followers of Jesus, faithful followers of Jesus. So no matter what, press on by imitating those who are, on, who are on the path of Jesus. One man who has really inspired me recently is Ravi Zacharias. Ravi paid more attention to the questioner than to the question, because behind the question there was always a story. I want to imitate Ravi as an evangelist, as an apologist, but more importantly, as a man who loved God and loved people. He was humble, gentle, kind, caring, was an expert in cricket and curry. God used the words of Jesus in John 14, 19 to penetrate his mind and heart on the day of his conversion. Because I live, you also will live. Ravi often said, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for humankind. He had his eyes focused on the finish line for himself and all the people he spoke to. Ravi was born in India, came to Canada at around 20 years of age, and then immigrated to the United States. But his true citizenship was somewhere else. Paul writes, In verse 20 of Philippians 3, 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. These verses are just loaded with meaning. Our citizenship is in heaven. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does living like a citizen of heaven look like? To understand this, we need to remember that Philippi prided itself on being a Roman colony. If you did not observe the social and religious norms, you were shamed. You were not a good citizen. You were not helping the society to function well. In some ways, similar to our COVID-19 situation, where we have all been sensitized to acceptable social behavior. The disciples of Jesus were often marginalized in Philippi. Their refusal to worship Caesar threatened the social order. Their faith had very real psychological, social, and economic consequences. They had to wrestle with the temptation to privatize their faith, to mute their faith. So Paul reminds the Philippians that their primary allegiance is to Jesus and his kingdom. They look to Jesus, their Lord, not to Caesar, for their model of behavior. Their new colony is the church. And this new colony lives according to the character of Jesus and the norms of his heavenly kingdom. My wife and my children, they carry two passports. Perhaps you do as well. Which citizenship do they value the most? Both passports, Canadian and Brazilian, are very valuable to them. They tell a story of their journey on earth. Both cultures have values in common and values that differ. Which of the two cultures dictates how they live? If they follow Jesus, their true citizenship lies in heaven. Their values and day-to-day behavior must reflect their heavenly homeland. They eagerly await his second coming. They will meet Jesus, their Savior and Lord, and will be completely transformed into his likeness. They will receive new resurrected bodies. They will experience a full realization of that heavenly citizenship with people from every language, tribe, and people group. Those who follow Jesus live toward this eternal reality, working out their salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul writes conforming their thoughts and values and behavior to his way. And this includes, of course, fighting against racism and social injustice within ourselves and so evident in our society. Is there any hope this will ever become a reality? Well, the active power of Jesus assures us of the fulfillment of that promise. It will happen by the same power that enables Jesus to subject all things to himself, to place all things under his authority. That is awesome, sovereign, almighty power. Complete fulfillment of the promise will come at the resurrection when we will sing, together with all of God's people, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. 
Our citizenship is already in that kingdom to come. So no matter what, press on, press on, because our citizenship already is in heaven. Paul concludes with a a final encouragement to persevere in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He stacks up five distinct terms of endearment. My brothers and sisters, those whom I love, those longed for, my joy, my crown. And after the encouragement, he writes again, those whom I love. There is no doubt as to how he feels about the Philippians, most of whom were not from his ethnic background. So no matter what, stand firm in this way, this way of Jesus, because Jesus has already made you his own because of the sure prize of transformation into the likeness of Jesus, because of the example of those who have gone before you, and because your citizenship already is in heaven. C.S. Lewis writes in his classic, Mere Christianity, and I quote, Hope means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some people, modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next the apostles who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. In the same way, he writes, We shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something, something else even more. Most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The Christian says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country, and to help others do, to do the same. Let's consider our own lives for a minute. What is the finish line that we are focused on? 
It could be degree completion, marriage, promotion. Those things are not bad in and of themselves. But what would it look like for us to apply that same focus or passion to the finish line of the way of Jesus, to know Jesus fully, to allow him to transform us into his likeness and to be with him and his people forever? What weighs us down right now? What distracts us from that focus? What causes us to stumble? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand what it means for us to focus on the finish line of the way of Jesus. Let's reflect on that right now. We've been reflecting on whether we're running the race well. Do we have our eyes focused on the finish line that Jesus has set before us? And so as we come to the Lord's table, let's just take a moment for prayer. Lord, we repent for the distractions. We repent for the focus on other goals. Too often we have our minds set on earthly things. And we forget the wonder of salvation in you, the joy of knowing you, the sure hope of transformation, and the joy of life with you and your people forever. So Lord, as we come to your table, we're filled with gratitude. By your grace, we have been justified, declared declared righteous, not guilty. We've become your sons and daughters, and we're being transformed by your Spirit into your likeness. May we fix our eyes on the finish line today and from now on. In the Gospel of Mark, Just before his death on the cross, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And we read this in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Jesus' body was wounded on our behalf. It was beaten and torn and mutilated for us. Jesus paid the price on that cruel cross that we could never have paid for ourselves. His body was broken so that we might be made whole that we might be reconciled with God and with one another. Jesus himself is our peace. He gave his life so that we might become one body on earth. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, we read a prophetic word which speaks to the death 
of Christ on the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took all our sin upon himself. And so if you aren't a follower of Jesus, this can be your first Lord's Supper. And I would just invite you to pray with me. Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I receive you as the one who truly took my sin upon yourself. You paid the price I could never pay. And I invite you, Jesus, to lead me from this day forward. I turn from my sin. I turn from the distractions. I turn from the things that I run after for fulfillment. And I turn to you because I believe that healing, that salvation, deliverance, freedom, it is found only in you. And so I choose to follow you. Thank you, Father, for adopting me into your family. Jesus, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to live within me and to change me, to make me into the person that you have created me to be. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you prayed that prayer from your heart, then I invite you to participate with us, those who follow Jesus. Jesus' body was broken. Christ's body broken for us. Let's partake together. passage continues in Matthew, sorry, Mark chapter 14, and we read, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. By his shed blood, We were ransomed, redeemed, saved, our sins covered. We belong to God. We are children of God. The blood of Christ shed for us. Let's partake together. Jesus, we are grateful because you live, because you were raised from the dead and are seated at the right hand of the Father, we will live.
You have made us alive in you now, and we will live with you forever. We are so grateful. In your name we pray. Amen. We witness to this reality that we celebrate by loving God and and loving one another. We wait for the day of Jesus' return with great expectancy. As he promised, the day is coming when he will lift the cup again and we will celebrate with him forever. God bless you.